Genesis chapter 3 will be our text this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 15, and we'll kind of jump around the entirety of the chapter, uh, and then we're going to kind of narrow in uh, about halfway through, kind of narrow in on verse 15 as the, the sort of main thrust of our text this morning. Um, as you may well know, Genesis 3 uh, is a chapter overflowing with worthy things to consider and one that you probably will have a lot of questions about, and, and we only have about 40 minutes to, to uh, consider it. And so we're going to barely scratch the surface here with Genesis chapter 3 this morning as you turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you're a guest with us, please take a moment, fill out a Connect card. Uh, you can find those in the shelf of the pew in front of you. And then after you fill that out, let us know your name and how to get in contact with you and what brought you to Veritas, how we can be praying for you, those sorts of things. You can either give it to one of the leaders you see up here, or there's a wooden box back there on the, the table in the back of the room. You can just drop it in there if, if you wish to do that. Well, uh, here we are, first Sunday of Advent, as Brian already mentioned, and, and uh, Advent, of course, is the, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and Christmas is, of course, the, the time in which we celebrate the arrival of God in the flesh Jesus, our Messiah, who has come to rescue and redeem us from slavery to sin, Satan, and death. But then Advent is, is the time in which we remember and identify with the longing and waiting of God's people for Christ's arrival. You know, Christmas didn't happen in a vacuum. There's a story, there's a narrative leading up to it, a story filled with longing and hope and sin and sorrow, a story wherein God's people were promised the arrival of the Messiah over and over and over, and yet they waited and waited and waited. And sometimes during that story, in the midst of those promises, in the midst of that waiting, things seemed utterly hopeless, like all was lost, like God had forgotten his promise, like he had forgotten to be gracious. And in those moments, he would often so graciously restate his promise to his chosen people, telling them, reminding them that he had not forgotten them, that he would send the rescuer, that he was still gracious, that he was going to be true to his word. And so for this Advent season, we're going to visit just a few of those texts wherein God promises to send this coming deliverer. And this is an important thing for us to do because, as we already said, Christmas didn't happen in a vacuum. We need to familiarize ourselves with this story and kind of trace this narrative because we won't be able to more fully appreciate the gravity of Christmas if we don't know what's leading up to it. It didn't happen in a vacuum. It didn't take place. Christmas didn't take place until about three-quarters of the way through our Bible. There's entire three-quarters of a story that take place that Christmas fulfills. And when we don't read and appreciate that part of the story, it'd be kind of like starting Harry Potter at the Deathly Hollows. Now, you don't want to start the, the book series at the Deathly Hollows. Of course, that's, that's the climax of the story. That's, that's the, 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 the part that everything else is leading up to. But it probably won't make as much sense to you, and you probably won't be able to fully appreciate the climactic nature of the Deathly Hollows if you haven't read The Sorcerer's Stone, if you don't know the, the story that begins there, and if you don't know about the story of, of, of Horcruxes and this magical community and, and uh, the, the story about Harry and Voldemort in the beginning, you need to know these things 
in order to, to appreciate the deathly hollows and to read it well. And likewise, you need to know the story of the scriptures, the story of sin and promise and God's people therein to know more about the depth and the riches of what we celebrate at Christmas. And so we're going to start where all good stories start at the beginning, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, where we find why Christmas is necessary in the first place and where we find this kind of kernel promise that Christmas fulfills. And so please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. We'll read Genesis chapter 3 from verse 1 to verse 15. Let's listen with reverence and joy to the inspired word of our Lord and our Savior. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. The Network, it's a movie I'm not at all recommending, is a 1974 dark comedy whose influence can still be seen in American entertainment today. It's about a deranged news anchor whose world unravels as he witnesses the unraveled world that we live in. And yet, as he himself unravels, the world begins to take notice, and ratings for this declining news program begin to skyrocket in ways that they hadn't seen in years. And, and the kind of climax scene of sorts 
takes place when this news anchor, Howard Beale, just unleashes on live television, going on a surprisingly somewhat insightful rant. He says, I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the streets. And there's nobody anywhere that seems to know what to do, and there's no way to end it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 36 violent crimes. As if that's the way it's supposed to be. We all know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. We all know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. I don't know if you realize it, but that's a profoundly theological statement and true. We all, every single one of us, knows that there's something deeply, truly, devastatingly wrong with this world. You know, if you've ever been angry, anybody who's ever been angry, which is all of us, about anything intuitively knows this because the, the emotion of anger is essentially outrage towards something that is just not right in our eyes. And we've all felt anger, even from our earliest days. We've intuitively known that there's something wrong with this world and that it's not supposed to be this way. And in Genesis 3, we find the Bible's explanation for why that is, why the world is not right, why things are bad, worse than bad, crazy, why there's sin and sorrow and suffering. Why there's divorce and murder and loneliness. Why there's pandemics and wars and famine. It shows us, more personally, why we cower from being truly known by other people. Why there are things about ourselves that we would love to change, know we need to change. Why there's evil in our thoughts and hearts and actions. And why we feel so utterly helpless to do anything about it, actually in and of ourselves. It all comes from this true story that we find in Genesis 3, what we Christians have come to call the fall, the fall. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3. It starts in Genesis 1 and 2, where we find God creating everything that is, including humanity as His special creation to be objects of His love and pleasure, and He places us in this beautiful, good, abundant world to live in and to cultivate and to take care of. And then in Genesis 3, we find that we, as humanity, rejected God and rebelled against His good purposes for us. And Dane Ortland described it something like this, that Genesis 1 and 2 is God creating us and saying, I love you. I created you because I want to be with you and I want you to be with me forever. And Genesis 3 is us saying, no, I think we'll do our own thing. I think we'll go our own way which is the catastrophic start of everything that is wrong with this world. But embedded in Genesis 3 is the eucatastrophic promise to make everything right again. And that launch, the, the, the launch of his rescue plan wherein he shows us what love truly is. And that's what we want to look at this morning 
on the first Sunday of Advent, where we find that although we've made a mess of ourselves in our world, God promises to send the snake crusher. We have cooperated with this serpent, with this snake, to make a mess of ourselves and our world, but God promises to send this rescuer, this deliverer, this snake crusher to redeem us and rescue us from all that ails us. And we want to unpack that big idea by looking at two truths. First, our our desperate need for the snake crusher, and then second, God's promise to send him. So looking at Genesis 3 as a whole, we find outlined here this, this kind of catastrophic event that led to the brokenness of our world and ourselves. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created Adam and Eve, humanity's first parents, and God created them to be his own image, to represent him, and to be objects of his special love in the world. And God created this wonderful world for Adam and Eve and their descendants to cultivate and care for and represent him in. And in this world, God created a garden called Eden. And Eden is a special place for humanity to meet with God and have communion with Him. And in this garden, the the Lord planted one tree, one tree that would be a kind of test of our trust in Him and His Word. A tree called the knowledge, a tree called the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve were were not to eat of this tree because if they did, then they in their world would begin to unravel something we know that they went on to do. And so in Genesis 3, we find the the event of the crime itself in verses 1 to 7. And then we find a courtroom scene of sorts in verses 8 to 13. And then we find the sentencing of the judge there in verses 14 to 19. And the prosecution in verses 20 to 24. That's Genesis 3 in a nutshell. And and so in verses 1 to 7, a crafty serpent approaches Eve and Adam. And he asks them, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And right away, we find this clever serpent to be misquoting and warping the word of God. The Lord did not say to not eat of any tree, but just one tree. And so Eve responds saying, we may eat of the the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, "You you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And now still, we find that Eve's answer is only partially right. She says that they're allowed to eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, true, but not the fruit of the one tree, true. But then she adds to God's word. We need to be very careful to not add to God's word. She adds to God's word and says that they shall not touch it. God didn't say not to touch it. He just said not to eat it, not to ingest it. But then the serpent responds to Eve saying, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now right there, what should Adam and Eve have said? They should have said, Get out of here, you nasty serpent. We're already like God. Right? Genesis 1, 26 to 28 We were made in the image and likeness of God. But tragically, instead of listening to God and trusting what God has said over them, Adam and Eve listened to and trusted the serpent. They chose to believe the word of the serpent over the word of God. They didn't trust God. They didn't believe what God said. They didn't believe that he truly loved them. They didn't believe that he truly had their best interest in mind. 
The great Puritan John Owen once wrote that the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. And truly, this this was the sin of our first parents, friends. They did not believe that God loved them. They rejected and rebelled against His loving kindness. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. And it would be really hard to overstate the the catastrophic effects of this in our world and, and in our lives. Each and every dimension of life has been ruined by this event. We find here that there are cosmic effects coming from this event. Cosmic effects. You see, the identity of the serpent here in Genesis 3 is kind of cloaked in mystery in some ways. But as the story of the Bible goes on, we find more and more about this serpent. And in fact, in the very last book of the Bible, we find one of the clearest statements available to us about his identity. In Revelation 12, 9, the serpent is referred to as that ancient serpent, a clear reference to Genesis 3, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's who the serpent is. The one that we call the devil and Satan. The deceiver, the one that the Apostle Peter said of him, that he's like a roaring lion roaming around seeking someone to devour. The Lord Jesus, he's the one that the Lord Jesus called a murderer and a liar. He is the serpent, the devil, Satan. And what we find in Genesis 3 is the event wherein he gains dominion over this world by defeating and taking captive God's image bearers, the ones who God intended to have dominion over the world. And now, 1 John 5 tells us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There are cosmic effects catalyzed from this event, cosmic. And then not only that, there are also creational effects flowing from this event. In Genesis 3, 17 to 18, we find that as a result of humanity's sin and rebellion against God, the ground is cursed. And that instead of experiencing the abundant fruitfulness of the garden, the ground will, from there on, produce thorns and thistles as man works the ground in difficulty all of his days until he dies and returns to the ground himself at death. Of course, this passage has its kind of immediate application of the difficulty of our work as human beings, but more broadly, it's showing us that while humanity lived in harmony with nature prior to Genesis 3, post-Genesis 3, there is a disruption to this original harmony. Now, in this world that we live in, in this creation, there is drought and disease and death. There's famine and and forest fires. There's tornadoes and toil, scorching heat and blistering cold and and more. In so many ways, we live a life wherein nature opposes us and disrupts us and sometimes harms us. There are creational effects to this fall in Genesis 3. There are not only creational and cosmic effects, there's also communal effects. There are communal effects as well. You take a look at, at verses 8 to 13 there. In this kind of courtroom scene, when God approaches Adam and Eve and he gives them their trial, did you notice, did you notice the blame shifting? The, the, the sort of barriers wedged between Adam and Eve and their fellowship with one another, their, their communal life together. Did you notice that when the Lord comes to the garden, he addresses Adam, he says, where are you? Who told you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? And of course, the Lord 
never asks questions because he's lacking information, but because he wants you to see what he already sees. But he, he asks these questions, and Adam responds so disappointingly. He says, it's this woman that you gave to me. She gave me the fruit, and I ate. He seeks to maintain his innocence by shifting blame onto his wife. Although he was the, the head of his household, the priest of the garden, the one who was meant to drive out the serpent and lovingly protect and care for his wife, he didn't love his wife as he ought. He stood idly by while she was assaulted by this clever serpent. And then when God addresses him, he, he, he says, I don't know, I just ate the evening meal that my wife made for me. It was her. And by the way, you're the one that gave her to me. And here we see this, this relational barrier driven between Adam and his wife, Eve. And what we find in that is something of a snapshot of what we come to see in all human relationships since then. We live in a world where in human beings, because we worship at the altar of self, we continually find ourselves at odds with one another. We bicker and blame like Adam and Eve here. We, we argue and fight. Husbands and wives abandon each other, commit adultery or spousal abuse. Parents abandon or abuse children. More, more broadly, we, we find in this world continually jealousy and racism, ethnocentrism, sexism, greed, all abounding the world over. We human beings commit horrendous acts and atrocities against one another, atrocities that you don't need to look past Genesis 4 or your evening news to see. There are communal effects from this fall. And if you'll allow me to kind of get sidetracked for a moment to address a potential question that some of you might have, you might be thinking, really, all of that from a single decision from a couple of people, a couple of people chose not to trust that God loved them, and now there are cosmic and creational and communal effects the world over at this scale. That seems a little extreme. And if that's you, you might not realize how important human beings truly are. Again, God created all things, but the apex, the climax of his creation, his magnum opus, if you will, was humanity, Adam and Eve, us. And yet we sought to take ourselves out of the proper place that God set us in his universe. We, we sought to exalt ourselves above God, and yet we're degraded lower than the serpent. Barring a, 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 an illustration from Tim Keller, you know, if you imagine a clock, if you open up a, a clock and you see all of these gears and pulleys and axles, and if everything is working just fine, the gears are in all the right places, functioning in their proper place, well, imagine one gear and especially important and vital gear, that is, saying, I don't want to be here. I don't like this particular axle that I'm on. I want to go up to this other axle. And yet, in so doing, it pops off and then falls down into the lower gears and, and starts to get all entangled and jammed and mixed up in all of these different gears, jamming up axles. And, and what Genesis 3 is showing us is that in it, that, that we were this one particularly essential and vital gear that decided to pop off of its axle and try to get higher up, but ended up falling lower than we could have even imagined. And what happens to a clock when gears pop off like that? It begins to grind and smoke, and, and it doesn't run properly if it runs at all. Well, that's what's happening to, to us and to creation and to the cosmos that we live in. This is why these effects are, are happening and why they're so extreme, because we disrupted God's good and orderly creation by not seeking to live 
in our proper place within it. That's why these effects are so wide and big and creational and cosmic and communal. That's why God's good and orderly creation seems so disorderly and chaotic now because we interrupted its orderliness. But then the effects of the fall, they're not only cosmic and creational and communal, they're also deeply, deeply personal. Because of the fall of our first parents, we are personally affected. We are all born into a state of corruption and condemnation. All of us inherit from our first parents sin and guilt from birth. Corruption and condemnation from our parents from birth. Romans 5, 18 to 19. In reference to Adam's fall, Paul says that his one trespass led to condemnation for all men, all humanity. That by his disobedience, the many, that's us, we were made sinners. Psalmist David, when he was lamenting his own personal sin and guilt, he says, I've been this way from birth. He says, Psalm 51, 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Because of this corruption and condemnation, we hide from God in fear and guilt and shame. We run away from Him just like our first parents did here in the garden when the Lord approached them after their fall. We run away from God in the perfection of His holiness because we fear being seen and judged by Him. And yet, just like he did in the garden here, he comes after us. And he does so again and again and again. If Genesis 1 and 2 is God telling us that he loves us and he wants to be with us, Genesis 3 is us rejecting and running away from God. The rest of the Bible is God pursuing us and chasing after us and showing us that he loves us over and over and over, showing up again and again, just like he did here in Genesis 3. And in fact, that is what Advent and Christmas are all about. It's about God coming after us. Every other religion of this world is about us making our way up to God, working our way up to God, finding our way back to Him and into His good graces and into peace and human flourishing. But Christianity is about us running away from God. And ruining ourselves in the process, but God running after us to rescue us from our ruin. We find his his gracious promise here in Genesis 3.15 to do precisely that in the coming of the snake crusher. Look with me next at how God graciously promises the snake crusher. We've been looking at the the chapter as a whole, but but let's narrow in on verse 15 now. this This is in the sentencing. And even before God hands out his sentence of judgment upon the human race, he gives this gracious promise. It's when he's speaking to the serpent. But Adam and Eve, of course, had to have overheard it as his gracious promise to them and to us. And I mean, what kind of God was, is so gracious that on the heels of our cosmic treason, his first word to us is not judgment, but a promise to rescue us. How wonderful is that? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what does that mean? Friends, this is the headwaters of gracious promises concerning Christ in the Bible. 
This is the seed of promise that will grow to be the great redwood that we call gospel. This is what we Christians have called for thousands of years the proto-evangelium, which means first gospel. Perhaps in modern parlance, we might call it the OG, the old gospel, the oldest gospel. And it starts with a promise of war, a promise of enmity. Now, enmity, that's not a word that we use a lot anymore, but you can see the word enemy as being closely related to it. It's a word that means hostility or animosity. When you hear the word enmity, OSU in Michigan might come to mind, right? It's a bitter rivalry between one team and another, between good, OSU, and evil, Michigan. Unlike yesterday, good will win. I promise you that. There's lasting enmity between these two groups. Well, this is like that, but at a cosmic level and more lastingly so. This enmity will not just be between the serpent and the woman, but between his offspring and her offspring, it says. This is ongoing, you see, and this this word translated as offspring there is right because it means offspring, but, but it might be more literally translated as seed. And that word seed there is is a singular noun, but it's what we call a collective singular. It's talking about a a whole host of descendants, but in the form of a single noun. And so there will be war between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. The woman is going to have children, and the serpent will have his spawn, and they will perpetually walk side by side in this world, being at war with one another. But then you can see as you read on in the verse that while this war is lasting, it is not eternal. Because although the seed here is a collective singular noun, it seems that the author of Genesis narrows in on a singular individual in the second half of the verse when he says that he, that's a single individual, a person, one person from this great collective seed that will one day be born as a descendant of this woman from the line of her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now that word translated as bruise here, it's an interesting one. It's only used three times in the Old Testament, and it's translated differently each time. It's kind of a, a, a fully orb-dimensional word. It's, it's, it's difficult to translate it, but, but the picture that it gives is not that of one accidentally, you know, stubbing their toe or running into the kitchen table with their knee while they're on their way out of the kitchen or something, resulting in a little purpley spot on their toe or leg. The same word, and when it's used in Psalm 139.11, could be translated as being overwhelmed, overcome. Job 9.17 translates the word usually as being crushed or battered. The picture it gives is of one being struck by a devastating blow, being crushed by the strike of another. And apparently, the snake will strike or crush or overwhelm or bruise the heel of one of Eve's descendants, while the descendant will strike or crush or overwhelm or bruise the head of the serpent. And although the same word is used both in both uh, sentences or in both lines there, Notice the asymmetry between the two wounds. It makes me think of my favorite TV show, The Office, which 
I think of The Office quite often, so it's not that surprising. But, but there's one episode that starts with Michael Scott uh, accidentally grilling his foot in this George Foreman grill one morning. And, and Dwight, when Dwight hears of it at the office, he, he rushes to Michael's apartment to rescue him. But on the way, Dwight gets in a car accident wherein he suffers, from, uh, uh, suffers a concussion. And then the whole episode is filled with Michael trying to pathetically garner sympathy from his coworkers while Dwight gets all the attention because of his concussion. Toward the end of the episode, when they finally get to the hospital, Michael asks the doctor, he says, Doctor, what's more serious, a foot injury or a head injury? The doctor responds without uh, without hesitation. He says, a head injury. Michael then says, well, you don't know all the details. It's absurd, but, but, but... it shows us something relevant here. A head injury is without question worse than a foot injury. Evidently, this coming seed of Eve will be injured by this nasty snake, but in a way from which he will recover. But at the same time, this nasty snake will be mortally wounded on the head by the coming seed. And so from this moment in the story, the the careful reader starts to keep a close eye on this seed, the offspring of the woman and the development of the story. And continually, you're you're asking the question, is this the one of all the seed of this woman? is, Is this the one who will finally gain victory over the serpent and rescue us from the dominion of this nasty serpent? And continually, we're we're disappointed by each offspring after another when we realize this is not the one. Immediately following our passage, we see Cain and Abel. Cain, obviously the seed of the serpent, and Abel, the seed of the woman. And we find Cain murders Abel, and Cain is exiled just like his mom and dad back in the garden, and Abel's line is snuffed out. But then hope is revived. Genesis 4.25, we see that Adam and Eve have another child named Seth. And of this child, Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring, another seed instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And our hope for the seed is revived. But Then the story kind of just passes over Seth. He's not the one that we're ultimately looking for. So we follow down the line. We come to a man named Abram. And God promises to Abram that he's going to bless him and his offspring, his seed, and that through Abram and his seed, all the peoples and nations and tribes of the earth will be blessed. We find that Abram is not actually the one that we're looking for. For on a couple of occasions, he acts just like Adam did back in the garden. He doesn't love his wife as he ought, but he puts her in danger to save his own neck. But then Abraham has has a child, Isaac, and Isaac has a child named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and Judah, one of his sons, is certainly not the snake crusher because he acts like the serpent himself often. But what's interesting is that the Lord promises to Judah in Genesis 49, 8-10 that the promised seed will continue and come through his line. And eventually, passing over a very long time, A young king named David makes his way into the story. And David is an interesting character. He comes from the line of Eve and Abraham and Judah. And he seems promising, so promising that God calls him a man after his own heart. 
And David leads the people of God into a season of unprecedented blessing and joy and flourishing. And you almost begin to think, this is the one. This is the snake crusher. He's going to lead us back to the garden. He's going he's to usher in the, the kingdom of God finally and completely. And you, you think that maybe David is the one until you find David completely blow it. Just like Adam and Eve all those years earlier. And yet again, God makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, just like he did to Adam and Eve, just like he did to Abraham, just like he did to Judah. He makes this promise that there will one day be a king who comes from his line, the seed of David, who will sit on the throne of God's kingdom forever and ever, and he will rule in justice and love and peace and righteousness forevermore. But of course, similar to before, when you start seeing David's most immediate descendants, what you find is enormously disappointing. They sin. They commit heinous acts of injustice. They worship false gods. They succumb to the serpent and they act more like the serpent than they do the promised snake crusher. And eventually they fail so catastrophically that their entire kingdom is defeated and they're sent into exile just like Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden all those years earlier. And now there's no more kingdom, no more line of David on the throne, and it seems that any likelihood of God's promise being fulfilled has been entirely snuffed out. And then, even still, while God's people are exiled and everything seems hopeless, God continues to restate His promises through these guys called the prophets. The prophets are, are continually foretelling the coming of this, coming, this, the, the, this promised seed who will come from the line of David. And one prophet in particular, named Isaiah, he tells us about the snake crusher's heel being crushed. A little more specifically, he says in Isaiah 53 that he will be stricken for the transgression of his people, that he will be crushed for our iniquities, that he will be wounded, and that by his wounds we will be healed. And isn't that precisely what we've seen happen, my friends? When just several hundred years later, we hear an announcement of a child's birth, one who is a son of Eve, of Abraham, of Judah, and of David, This is the one, John tells us, this has got to be the one who's come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And when he grew up, he he traveled among the people of God and he told them, the kingdom of God is here. And he was tested. He was tested, tempted by Satan like Adam and Eve were. But instead of being defeated, he remained steadfast and faithful and firm. And yet as the only faithful one, eventually the seed of the serpent had him executed and killed on a tree, similar to the one that he told us to eat from in the beginning. And he was killed just like Abel so long ago by the seed of the serpent. And yet this was no ordinary death. This is, as Isaiah told us, the one who is stricken for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, wounded so that we would be healed of all that ails us since Genesis 3. His heel was stricken. But in having his heel struck, he mortally wounded the serpent's head and defeated him for good. The Apostle Paul, he picks up on this victorious theme in Colossians 2, 13 to 15, and he tells us that you who were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh... We who are casualties of Genesis 3 
God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He took our corruption and condemnation upon himself on that tree. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in so doing, well, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He triumphed over Satan and his spawn. He crushed the head of that nasty serpent. He took our condemnation and freed us from our corruption. And even in that, even in that, the story is not over, my friends, as one who's apt to do when their heel is struck, they recover. And three days after his death on the cross, Christ rose from the grave, sealing his triumphant victory over the serpent and over our sin. So that this battle over the cosmos and the effects of the fall of this creation and the communal barriers we experience therein and the personal corruption and condemnation that separated from us, separated us from our God and Father all have been defeated. Now, regarding the, the personal effects of the fall, There's nothing, Paul tells us in Romans 8, that can separate us from our God and his love for us in Christ Jesus. Because our our condemnation has been condemned and what corrupted us has been defeated. Now, regarding the communal effects of the fall, we have been brought into this new humanity called the church, wherein we live as a little Edenic community in the midst of this fallen world, wherein once divided us from Genesis 3 onward, no longer does. Now, regarding the fall's creational effects, we we have the promise of Christ's one-day return where he will do to the entirety of creation what he once did to that little tomb outside of Jerusalem. He will make all things new. Now, in respect to this cosmic moor that we find ourselves in, he has stomped the head of Satan giving him his mortal wound, which he will one day succumb to when he's cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. All this God did, and he did it because he loves us and he wants to be with us forever. He's not like Adam who didn't love his wife well. He loves his bride with all of his big, great, infinite heart. Friends, remember, that the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. Just one little piece of final application here. Realize this. Realize, God knows you. And He knows the depths of your sin and fallenness and depravity even better than you do. And yet He has ordered all of human history to rescue you, to love you to give you the gift of being alive with him and he with you in his perfect world forever and ever. He sent and gave his only son to make it happen. We finally believe, unlike Adam and Eve, that he loves us. Has he not shown us that he does? Has he not proved it in ways that far exceed what Adam and Eve even knew? He has. He has shown us that he loves us. He loves you. He wants to be with you forever. He moved heaven and earth to make it happen. Believe that this morning. Let's trust him together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this big, great story that we find ourselves in. We thank you for creating us 
to be objects of your love and pleasure forever, but even more in your redemption of us to be objects of your love and pleasure forever for the sacrifice of your son, for his coming, for his life, for his death, for his resurrection, for his ascension. And we look forward to his one day return when we will be with you forever and ever in the perfect world that you have made and are making ready for us. Help us to wait for it with patience and to believe what you say. In Jesus' name, amen.